Uh, and this week we'll be looking at the, uh, the self-revelation of God in Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 8, uh, and the attributes that God proclaims to Moses. If you don't have a handout, there's a couple in the back uh, just to, to follow along with what we got here. Yeah. And week four, so next week we'll be looking at um, the refuge we have uh, in, in meditating on God's character uh, as laid out in Psalms 11 and how a knowledge of God and his attributes can be a firm ground to stand on when all around us seems to be given way. Um, but before we get started, let's, uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Almighty, infinite Father, Lord, humble us as we, we come before you. Lord, I want to acknowledge my dependence on you, Lord, as I'm up here teaching on your name and, and your character as you have revealed yourself. Lord, as I teach this to you, your flock, I pray that you would help us to, to marvel at who you are, Lord, at your character, that we might marvel and worship you. Lord, keep us from error. I pray that you would be glorified this hour, Lord, as we grow in our knowledge of you. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, since it has been uh, almost four months since I taught last, I'm going to give a, a recap of those first two weeks. Um, and at first, I want to just to revisit some definitions that we had. Um, theology, we know, is a, it comes from a Greek word, two Greek words, uh, uh, theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word. So together, those are words about God or a study of God. Um, and theology proper was what we're focusing on here is a study of God the Father, uh, particular, and it's, it's different than Christology, which is a study of Christ, or again, pneumatology, which is a study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the theology proper that we're going to be going, looking at these, uh, the past two weeks in February and the next two weeks now will be looking at God the Father himself. And his attributes, uh, the attributes of God refer to the, uh, the perfectness of his being, which are declared or revealed uh, to us in Scripture or on display uh, through his work in creation, providence, and redemption. And these attributes are the qualities of the entire Godhead and permanent qualities that are in perfect harmony with each other. And we're going to talk about some incommunicable and communicable attributes. Uh, we categorize those with those that uh, the attributes that God shares with us, uh, which is his communicable ones, and those that he does not share with us, his incommunicable attributes. Um, and those attributes of God are um, presented, or there are irrespective, God's attributes are irrespective of humans or creation. Those are his being, it's part of his being. A couple of examples of his incommunicable attributes would be his independence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his infiniteness, and his eternality. God is completely perfect and absolutely independent of anything else in creation. He is infinite and eternal, uh, neither of which we are. He is immutable and unchanging. And in Genesis 1, we see that we are made in his image, which means that we can reflect some of his attributes uh, to an extent, but not fully. So in these attributes, uh, we can say that God shares with them uh, to us to a degree, but never to the full ex extent or to the infinite per um, perfection as they are in God. And last time we looked at the importance of studying theology, having a right concept and knowledge of God is foundational to our Christian lives. So that the study of true theology 
leads to true doctrine, which leads to true doxology. And that's our goal here, is to get a better understanding of God so that we might truly worship Him. Uh, In week one, we looked at uh, God's clear and plain revelation of Himself to all men everywhere. God's existence is revealed uh, through creation, uh, it's revealed in Scripture, and through His incarnate Son. And we know in Romans 1 that no one can say that they are unaware of God. They are without excuse, it says. And because God has revealed Himself to us, it means we can know Him. He is an infinite God and yet desires a personal relationship with His creation, with, with us, with us individually. Um, the impact that God's existence and his knowability has on us should bring about a humbleness in our lives as we meditate on God's incomprehensibility and, and bring, a delight, uh, bring about a delight in him, a delight in the study of God's word, a delight in his presence and getting to behold his beauty as we see him there. Meditating on God and his character is something that um, we will never be able to exhaust just one of his, his attributes. We can study him forever, and one attribute, we'll, we'll, we'll never know the, the depth of it. You know, we I talked about the impact um, uh, of the growth and maturity that comes from a, a growing knowledge of God. When, when we are grounded in a true theology, we can really walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And we know that mature Christians are not easily tossed about by the doctrines of this world, uh, by cunning deceitfulness, and the, and the whole church grows um, in a better light of the world around and is a better light to the world around it. And so in, in week two, we looked at seven different attributes of God. We did three incommunicable and four uh, communicable ones. I'm just going to kind of uh, give a brief synopsis of each one of those. Uh, We looked at the simplicity of God. It's also called the unity of God. Simple as in not complex or composed of parts. These attributes of God are not um, evenly distributed through the Godhead like they're the sum total of God and all together they equal one God. It says God is not a composite being made up of all his attributes. But we do see different attributes of God at different times and emphasized in different ways. We shouldn't think of one attribute as more important than the other. God can't set aside one attribute um, and act in a way that would be contrary to another. To do that would be inconsistent with his character. Okay, nor should we try to triage them and put them in a ranked order of least to greatest. Um, we must hold to the truth that the, uh, the attributes of God all operate in perfect harmony with one another. Uh, the aseity, or the, the self-existence of God, this is... Uh, the, the definition of that would be God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. He is independent in everything, in his decrees, in his virtues, in his works, and causes everything to be dependent on him. And yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. And when we looked at God's declaration uh, of, of Moses, of God's declaration to Moses in Exodus 3, I mean, he says that it's the I am who sins... Um, Moses to the, sends Moses the, the message to Pharaoh and to his people. This name of God is, is his covenant name, is Yahweh. It points to the truth that, that, is, that God's existence and character are self-determined and independent. 
He is the one who has eternally existed and will eternally exist. He lacks nothing in his character or nature. And he didn't need to create man uh, to, to, for us to serve him or to garner a love for him because he was deficient in something in his nature or his character. And God is independent of man and his works and doesn't need our love or our worship or our service or anything else that we have. Everything is already his. And he gives us all that we have. The breath that we have, all that we have is, is from him. And he causes us to be completely and totally dependent on him. I mean, that should, should humble us that this, this God who is self-existent and independent created us for his glory and our joy. We look at God's immutability and his unchangingness. You know, I spent more time on that second week looking at this because I think the, the hope and the encouragement it brings. God is unchanging in his being, in his perfections, his purposes, and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. And we know that like, everything does change. It either changes for the good or for the bad. But we have a God who never changes. He is perfect in his being, always and forever. You can view God from any angle, any circumstance, any struggle, and know that you will never see any change in God in his purposes or his promises. Um, you know, you'll certainly see different aspects of God through different circumstances, but God in and of himself is perfectly consistent. Um, if he's been good in the past and given us the good gifts that we need, we can, be, um, we can know that he in the future will, will do the same for us. Malachi 3.6 is what God says of himself. He says, I, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God says here that he in his being is unchanging, and because of that his people will not be consumed. Praise the Lord for his consistent and unchanging nature. So those are the three incommunicable ones. Uh, the, the four communicable ones we looked at were the holiness of God. God is absolutely distinct from his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. In a relational sense, God is absolutely distinct and set apart from his creatures, from us. Um, he's not just greater by degrees. It isn't appropriate to think of the most pure and holy person we know of and then take that little leap the next and apply that to the holiness to God. He's just simply not like us. Um, now, I, know I mentioned earlier that we're not to put that, the attributes of God in a hierarchy, um, but I do want to say that the holiness is one that might be most central and, and supreme to God. We said that no other attribute of God is stated like his holiness. I think the seraphim uh, declare before the throne of God that he is holy, holy, holy. Now, this threefold repetition is the greatest degree of comparison. It emphasizes God's degree of separateness from creation. God in his holiness is so awesome that we cannot truly imagine it this side of heaven. And his holiness permeates all that he is and all that he does. And since the Lord is holy, his people are, are, are consecrated themselves and are to be consecrated themselves as well and to live separately from the world around them. And we are, as believers are called to be holy, called to be set apart because the Lord is holy. And that is something we see in Leviticus 19.2 and 1 Peter 1.15. We looked at the sovereignty of God. You know, the definition of sovereignty from uh, Wayne Grudem is that God's sovereignty is an exercise of his power or rule as sovereign or king over his creation. 
to be the sovereign ruler over his creation, he has to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and independent of all. Psalms 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There is no one greater than him. He is above all. He sovereignly exercises his rule and his will anywhere and everywhere. Um, this is another attribute of God that is uh, truly comforting to believers. Uh, there is nothing that happens outside of God's perfect sovereign will. Uh, Jerry Bridges put it this way. He says, God is completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom, and perfect in love. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has a power to bring it about. God communicates, I don't think I made this clear when I spoke on it last time, but this is, this, God communicates his aspect of like, sovereignty to us in a way that in the garden, uh, before there was any sin in the world, uh, man was given the task to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over it. So this is a small example of how we are to exercise the, the, um, our will and rule over what God has given us, but never to the same degree or extent that God rules. Um, Love is, was the next uh, attribute. God's love means that God. God's love means that God eternally gives Himself to others. God is not love to the exclusion of His other attributes. His love does not nullify or override His wrath or His justice. And since love is a part of His attributes, and He is a unified God, His love is eternal and never ends. And we can know God through his demonstration of his love as it's seen of his giving of his son to be our substitute and assume the guilt and punishment that we deserve. This is how God manifests his love to us or puts it on display for all to see. We didn't deserve this love, again, because we earned it. He chooses on those to whom to show mercy. He chooses on those to, to who show his love. That's what Romans 5, 8 and John three sixteen they say the same thing. God loved us while we were his still enemies and showed his love by coming to earth and standing in our place. There cannot be a greater display of love. Now, we are also called to um, communicate this attribute, uh, and that's something we see in 1 John. That there are, that we are to show the love to others because God has shown his love so magnificently to us. You know, I think John says that if we don't show, um, if we don't love, he, if we don't show love, he does not know God. Um, this is like part of the litmus test for believers. God wants us to be a church that is so overflowing with the love of God that we can't help but to want to love and to serve those around us in any way that we can. All right, and the last attribute we talked about was wisdom. Um, this is a definition from Grudem. It says, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means for those goals. And uh, Tozer put it like this. He says, wisdom is the ability to devise the perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. So in wisdom, God can see the beginning and the end. And God is working out 10,000 things in each one of our lives and God, in his wisdom, he can bring it about this beautiful tapestry um, from the tangled mess of our lives with just this perfect, flawless precision in a way that we can glorify God. Each and every trial, blessing, sickness, struggle, heartache 
is known by the all-wise God, and he uses those to draw us to himself. God is the all-wise one, but he shares his wisdom with us when we ask. James 1.5 tells us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God loves to share his wisdom with us when we ask. God's attributes can be found on pretty much every page of Scripture. It is such a blessing to, be, to, to read when, and to ask yourself when you do, what did I learn about God from this passage? And when you stop and, and think about for a few minutes that question, what you just read, you'll, you'll begin to see so much more of God. You can ask what attributes of God are on display in this text. And just by having that, the, the radar of your heart tuned to his attributes, I'm confident that when you read, you'll be amazed at, at what you learn about God as you read. All right, and that was the introduction and the recap of the past two weeks. I want to spend the rest of our time in Exodus, and we're going to look at, um, you know, focusing, we're going to spend our time looking at uh, Exodus 34, but I do want to give some context, and this will take a few minutes. Um, uh, we know that or we're going to be looking at this interaction between Moses and God leading up to God's this, this glorious revelation of himself to Moses in response to his prayer when he says, show me your glory. And we're going to pick out uh, and expound on several of the attributes that God reveals of himself. All right. And I want to think that just before we get into that, um, have you ever felt as a Christian that you are in over your head or the circumstances are so difficult that you don't know how to move forward? Are you in such a place where you can't go on in your own strength? Because that, that's where Moses was when he cried out to the Lord for a deeper knowledge of him. May we learn to respond in the same way with our trials. All right, so in Moses, the book, sorry, the book of Exodus is a story of God's um, redeeming and delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. You know, he brings them out of the wilderness, he brings them into the wilderness out of slavery uh, in Egypt, leading them to the promised land that he told he would give, he would give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. You know, he leads his people through Moses to the wilderness and to Mount Sinai, where he calls Moses up to give him the law and the commandments of God. Well, while Moses was up there for 40 days, receiving various laws and how they were to govern the nation, different feasts, instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant, a detailed plan for the tabernacle where God himself would reside, how the priests are to operate, the sacrifices and offerings, the workings of the temple. But however, down at the base of the mountain, uh, the people got anxious. Moses was gone for 40 days, and they began to question Moses' leadership and forgot all that they had witnessed God accomplish to get them to this point. They wanted something physical to worship. Um, so Aaron had everyone bring their gold, and he built them a calf as an idol for them to worship. Now, I don't want to scoff at them or think that we wouldn't do the same thing. How often do we all forget uh, that the Lord, what the Lord has done for us? I think we have to remind ourselves daily of the good things that the Lord has done for us. And if we were to think about it, we'd probably say that we're more like the Israelites at the base of the mountain than we are with Moses, who is communing with God. 
I'm going to kind of pick up and, and turn to Exodus 32. We're going to kind of walk through Exodus 32 through 33 and as we narrow in on Exodus 34. So in Exodus 32, 9, it's, um, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? See, back on the mountain, God knew all that was going on and told Moses what the people were doing. And he said that he would wipe them out and start over with Moses. But Moses pleaded and interceded on their behalf. In verse 11, it says he implored God or entreated him, entreated for the favor of God. And down in verse 14, we see that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God relented of that disaster. And now Moses goes down, and on his way down, he starts to hear the partying of the people before he finally sees their dancing before the golden calf. In verse 19, it says, As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw down the tablets of the law that God has written and broke them. And we see this is one of the pictures of the communicable attributes of God, his wrath towards sin and rebellion. So Moses took the golden calf and he burned it. So he ground it into powder and then he spread it out in the water and made the people drink it. This is no small feat or no quick process. I mean, the melting of gold, the melting temperature of gold is about 2,000 degrees. And I don't know whether or not he melted it completely before grinding in a powder, but what he's doing, his actions are showing the people that this God that they were worshiping, this, this worthless God is, is nothing. Nothing. And then uh, we see that the further judgment was brought on the people by the sword, uh, where 3,000 people were struck down. It's in verse 28. And then um, there, there was a, a plague what was sent on the people. Moses interceded yet again in verse 31. And said he would seek the Lord and make atonement for their sin. In this chapter here, in, verse 30, in, in chapter 32, there is no mention of remorse or sorrow for the people for their actions. It is not until we get to chapter 33, where God tells the people to go into the land that he had promised them, because he's still a faithful God, but he said that he would not go with them because they were a stiff-necked people. He cannot go with them because of his holiness and their sin. It says the two cannot mix. Verse 3 says, Go into the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this, this disastrous word, they mourned. This is the first sign of their mourning when they know that the presence of God would no longer be with them. And so again, down in verses 12 and 13, Moses again goes to the Lord and intercedes on their behalf. He says, Moses is saying in 12 and 13 in this interaction, he says, you told me to lead this people, but I can't do it on my own. Who will go with me? So Moses is pleading for the presence of God. The Lord answers in verse 14. He says that um, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 
He is assuring Moses of his presence with him, but this you here, it's singular. He says God's going to be with Moses, but not with the people. This is similar to what we read earlier when God said to Moses on the mountain that he would start over with Moses. Moses says, though, in response to this, that unless God goes with the people, he didn't want to leave. And and in 15, he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up. Do not bring us up from here. Moses um, reminds that it is the presence of God that his people, that makes, let's see, it's, it's the presence of God with his people that makes them who they are, not necessarily the blessings of the promised land alone. He says that the, the blessings of the promised land are not worth comparing to being with God himself. All right, so for some of us here, are you enjoying the blessings of church, friendship, and the fellowship, uh, the hope, the, the promise of a clear conscience, but don't want the all-consuming presence of God in your own life? Maybe you don't want to conform to a life of selflessness or putting off the sin that you love because of the, the Holy One cannot be in the presence of sin. Do you want the blessings of the church without actually having a relationship with God himself? Are you looking for the blessings but not from whom, the one that, from whom they come? If you only love, if you're looking for the blessings but not, oh, sorry, if, if you only love and pursue his benefits, what will happen when they were not there or God withholds them. If you only pursue his blessing, what happens when life gets hard? Let me challenge all of you to be like Moses here and pursue God himself to find pleasure and delight in the presence of God and the knowledge of him and not just his benefits, not just his blessings. Back to Moses in Exodus uh, 33, 17, um, we see that after, after Pleading with God, God said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by your name. So the Lord says that he will go with his people. And so Moses finally cries out in verse 18. He says, Moses, Moses said, Please show me your glory. Moses wants a deeper revelation of God and knows that the knowledge of God is a constant need for him. I mean, if you think of Moses, he had seen the miracles that God worked in Egypt uh, before Pharaoh finally let them go. They, they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. So they are led by a pillar of, of cloud and a pillar of fire. Uh, they are fed by manna from the sky. They are watered um, from a rock. You know, he is with the Lord for 40 days on Mount Sinai before finally descending on the golden calf scene. And still he cries out for more of God's glory and more of God's presence. And if Moses sees the need for more of the Lord, how much more do we need that in our lives? Do we need to pursue the presence of God? So how does the Lord respond to this plea from Moses and knows that he cannot go alone? He graciously says that he will do two things. In 18, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim proclaim before you the name the Lord. He will show him all his goodness and will proclaim his name before him. And he says he's gracious and merciful or compassionate toward those whom he chooses. 
God reveals himself through his character and through his name. And so this is where we start to see some more of the attributes of God on display. When you feel like you can't go on because of the difficult circumstances or feel dry and weary, filling your mind with the character of God, lifting your eyes heavenward, and pursuing him will fill your soul with hope, joy, and worship. You know, Moses does ask to see God's glory, and God says that he will show him. However, he must first conceal him behind a rock because he is a righteous and holy God. Moses cannot look into the face of God and see his glory and live. But God graciously lets him, that the backside of his glory be seen by Moses. So he provides exactly what Moses needs to protect him from his own awesome glory. He knows our frame. He knows uh, that, that, that we could not stand that. And so he prepares a hiding place for him so that he is not consumed. Now, to chapter 3, or chapter 40, 34. Now, God, again, commands Moses to bring two more tablets up to the mountain. Like the first time when he went to Mount Sinai, he said that no one could come with him. The animals couldn't even be on the mountain. God is holy, and he's calling Moses to him. And his presence is is so, so holy and awesome in his presence that he only allows Moses to come up with him. And But Moses diligently obeys. He cuts two more tablets out of stone and, and comes up there. And so this is where we're going to be reading. And in on five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I have found favor in your, I now have found favor in your sight. O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So the Lord is going to proclaim in verse 5, is going to proclaim his own name to Moses. So the Lord is going to preach a sermon to Moses, and he has two points. It's his name and his character. Um, and we'll take this bit by bit. I was listening to um, Steve Lawson talk on this, and he said that um, there is nowhere else in the Bible where God's name, uh, the Lord, the Lord God, is, is put together. I mean, I did a quick search and couldn't find anything else, so I guess it must be true. <laughs> um, uh, but this repetition of the Lord, it's, it's Yahweh, Yahweh God, underscores its importance, repeating it again. Kind of like we saw holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's saying here, the Lord, the Lord God. Now, he starts with his covenant name. It's Yahweh, um, which he first spoke to Moses back in chapter 3. Remember his covenant name, that I am? We recall from earlier, this is the aseity of God. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. He does not depend on anyone else at all, and all depend on him. Um, he is independent, eternal, immortal, and self-existent. And yet he still has a personal covenant with his people. And he's reminding Moses by saying, this is Yahweh. And and he continues, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. Or um, the Hebrew word for God here is El, meaning the strong one. 
He is the preeminent one, the all-powerful, omniscient, covenant-keeping God who rules over all creation and the one who spoke it all into being. God proclaims to Moses his name, Yahweh, Yahweh God. We need to have a growing and deepening knowledge of this great, powerful, and awesome God. You know, as this knowledge grows and we walk through life's difficult circumstances, those burdens become more bearable. I pray that even we can elevate our view of God and his majesty of his name. You know, so after God, that's, that's, that's his first point. This is the name of God. He moves to his character. And there are seven different attributes uh, that God proclaims of himself to Moses. Now, again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but exactly what Moses needs to hear right now. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. Other translations say compassionate God. So this is his goodness that he shows to those who are in misery or distress. He's not like the other gods who are harsh and cruel, who are self-seeking and unfeeling and have no power to care for its worshipers. Our God this God, the covenant God, is full of compassionate, compassion and tender care for his children. His mercy is more than any affliction we might face. I read a Desiring God article recently titled, Mercy Swallows Any Sorrow. And in it, the author quotes Luther. He says, so what Luther is saying, the sea of God's mercies should swallow up all our particular afflictions. Name any affliction that is upon you. There is a sea of mercy to swallow it up. If you pour a pail of water on the floor in your house, it makes a great show. But if you throw it into the sea, there's no sign of it. So afflictions considered in themselves we think are very great. But let them be considered with a sea of God's mercy we enjoy. Then they are not so much. They are nothing in comparison. Any affliction we face, currently or in the future, we can say that God's sea of mercy will swallow it up. And when we are in distress, we should come to the Lord and seek his mercy, seek his compassion, as David did. In, in 2 Samuel 24, 14, God, this is David saying, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. And then Paul uh, says in 2 Corinthians 1.3 that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. This is a communicable attribute that we are also commanded to imitate. Uh, we imitate God's mercy as we interact with others. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And in 2 Corinthians 1, we are to comfort others with the same affliction, or comfort others in their affliction with the same comfort that God comforts us. And this is one of the many reasons why God just allows suffering. When someone is suffering and finds comfort in the mercy, uh, comfort in the mercy and compassion of the Lord, they are to then show that same comfort and compassion with others who are suffering. And I know many of you have, are suffering or have suffered through a trial and been comforted. I want to encourage you to look around you, those that who are currently suffering, and see how you can imitate God's mercy and compassion to them. It says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, 
he proclaims himself to be a gracious God. This grace is God's goodness and favor towards those who deserve only wrath and punishment. We know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that grace is a free gift of God, never something that we can work for or earn. We know that that is not what we deserve since Romans 3, 23 and 24 tells us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our standing before God on our own is one that has completely fallen short. But by God's grace, we are given in Christ his perfect righteousness and are counted as the ones to inherit eternal life with him. God is proclaiming to Moses that this grace comes from within his very being. And at the same time that God is giving uh, the law for which to live by, the law that he knows that they can never keep, the law that shows them how inadequate they are, he is proclaiming in his person that he is still, he is a gracious God. And we know that as an attribute of God, it operates together with his other attributes, and his grace is infinite, his grace is eternal, and his grace is boundless. What a sweet comfort for Moses who just witnessed a nation in a very short period of time turn from following God to worshiping an idol. And what a sweet comfort it is for us today to marvel at the limitless, boundless, and free grace of God in our lives. A.W. Tozer concluded his chapter on the grace of God like this. We who feel ourselves alienated from the fellowship of God can now raise our discouraged heads and look up. Through the virtues of Christ's atoning death, the cause of our banishment has been removed. We may return as a prodigal returned and be welcome. As we approach the garden, our home before the fall, the flaming sword is withdrawn. The keepers of the tree of life stand aside when they see a son of grace approaching. God told Moses earlier when he first asked to see God's glory that he is gracious on those he will be gracious. And this grace comes from the sovereign plan of the Lord. He's under no obligation to show any of his creatures this grace, but he chooses to do so because that's in his character. And we are to extend that same grace um, to others the way we have shown grace. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. I think we can all be thankful that God's anger towards sinners is slow. If it's not, I don't think any of us would be here today. <laughs> you can say that, uh, that this is the slowness um, of anger is God's patience. He's not prone to fly off the handle in anger towards us, or uh, his anger is not easily kindled. If not for his patience uh, towards me, he, I think he would take look, one look at me and see the sin in my heart and strike me down. But thanks be to God that that is not who our God is. He is a God who is slow to anger. I mean, think of the patience uh, towards an entire population during the time of Noah, where he spent over a hundred years patiently waiting for the ark to be built. His judgment was set, but he still postponed the, the, that damning sentence. We also see a, a reason for this patience towards win, willful sinners in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. It says, but do not look 
Overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We see that God is slow to anger, and we should also learn to have that patience towards others. As the Lord waits and lengthens the offer of his mercy and his grace towards sinful people, so should we show patience and long-suffering towards those who have wronged us. Let us not have anger that is held back only by a hair, easily released when someone offends us or speaks against us. Let's meditate afresh on the long-suffering of the Lord who has countlessly been sinned against and yet still patient towards the sinner. Let's not fall into that mindset that Jonah did, that he was angry with God when he relented from the disaster towards the Ninevites when they repented. He, Joel even quotes uh, Exodus 34, 6 here. as a reason for his running, running away. He said, I know that you are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. So Jonah did not have this slow toward, slowness towards anger the way God does. And let's not be like that. James tells us that we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And this can only be done uh, through the Holy Spirit. This is one of the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22, this patience. Patience requires a moment-by-moment moment trust in the Lord as we wait for him to fulfill his promises and purposes and whenever the circumstances, all in his timing. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. The Lord abounds in love towards us. This isn't just a little bit of love that just barely covers us. It's a fountain of love that overflows in such a way that we can never plumb the depths of it. It's abounding. It's, it's plentiful. And it says it's kept for thousands of generations. It's perpetual. So God's love said in these verses to be plentiful and perpetual. There is never an end to the love that God sets on us. Again, since this love is a part of God's character, it cannot be influenced by us. We do not get to earn his love or merit it in any way. His love is limitless, eternal, it's sovereign, and it never changes. And as we have been shown such an abundant love, we are to show that love towards others. And get summarized in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. We are first to love the Lord with everything in us and show that same love towards others. You saw earlier in, in, in John uh, that the people will know us as his disciples as we have love for one another. Love is a defining characteristic of a believer. Looking back in our passage, it says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Other translations say abounding in steadfast love and truth. How refreshing and relieving it would have been for Moses to hear that God is not only abounding in love, but he is also a, a faithful God. All around, Moses has seen a people be completely unfaithful to God. 
Yet God has stated in his character, his perfect character is faithful. He is truth. You know, God's faithfulness means that he will, God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. We can depend on God and what he said he would do. If he said he is slow to anger, we can trust um, in him that will, he will be perfectly patient in accordance with his character. When he says he abounds in love, we can trust that nothing can cut off his love towards those whom he pours it on. God reveals himself to Moses here, and we know that he is faithful to all that he proclaims and speaks nothing but the truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God proves true. They're not true because they conform to some outside standard of truth. They are true because God's words are the standard of truth. Jesus said of uh, the Father in John 17, 17, it says, Your word is truth. I think at the very core of our faith is, is taking God at his word and depending on him to do all that he has said and promised. The faithfulness of God is a bedrock for sound theology because of his faithfulness. All his promises stand and his covenant will never fail. And we can look forward with absolute certainty to the rich blessings of an eternity in heaven despite all the unfaithfulness we see around us and even within us. His faithfulness does not depend on us. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the truthfulness and the faithfulness of the Lord are also communicated to us. We are commanded not to lie to one another, to put away falsehood and speak the truth, to love truth and to hate falsehood. We are to be uh, honest and plain and faithful to what we say. James said that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. So let us live in such a way that we reflect the faithfulness of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God continues this revelation of himself as a God who forgives. This forgiveness is a, a lifting up, a, a taking away or a carrying off normally of a debt. And this debt we all have is encompassed by saying iniquity, transgression, and sin. Iniquity elsewhere is translated as wickedness or turning away from the straight and narrow. Transgression is a rebellious attitude towards God's authority in one's life. And sin is missing the divine mark. In other words, God is saying here that there is no category of sin and no length of sin that is beyond God's divine forgiveness. I think you need to repeat that. There is no, it's such good news. There is no category of sin, no length of sin that is beyond God's divine forgiveness. Here, God's mercy and his grace, his patience, his faithfulness are on full display and reach this pinnacle when God forgives a wretched sinner. This, this forgiveness is a legal act where God removes the immense debt that we all have charged against us and can only come through the atoning work of Christ. See, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to Christ's work on the cross, and now we are looking back on his finished and completed work. We know we can never atone or pay for our own sins, but Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God.
This forgiveness is a part of the character of God and communicable to us. This is the point of the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant. It's a warning. He's, he's forgiven a debt that he could never in his whole lifetime repay. He was forgiven, but he could not forgive his fellow servant for a sum that was far less than his own. This parable contains that warning will happen for those who don't forgive others. But it's also positively stated in Ephesians 4.23. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord here displays that he is a just God who cannot sweep sin away without a payment. We are all guilty of sin before God. And the guilty here are those who never place their, their faith in the atoning work of Christ. They would rather face God's judgment on their own merits. And they will never be anything other than guilty before God. In God's justice, they will get what is due to them. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. I know the next part of the verse says that the free gift of God is eternal life, but what God has been revealing up to himself is now that he is, he's first, first was focusing on his mercy, his grace, his patience, his faithfulness, and his forgiveness. But now he turns to his justice and his wrath. Death is the wages, payment, paycheck of what we have rightfully earned. David said in Psalms 14 that there is none who does good. All turn aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who dug, done good. No, not one. And because the wrath of God, because of that, the wrath of God will not be cleared away. The guilty will not be cleared. It says also that the iniquity of the fathers is passed down from generation. It seems to undermine all that has been said so far about God's mercy, his, his, his grace, his love and faithfulness and forgiveness. But we know that's not the case. God is faithful to his character and will forgive those who repent and turn to him. Sometimes there are horrible consequences of sin that remain and shape a younger generation. I think this also doesn't contradict what we heard a few weeks ago in Ezekiel 18, where it says that the soul that sins will die. The sons there would, would not suffer from the iniquity of the father. The son is said not to carry or bear the penalty of the iniquity done by the father. In Exodus, earlier uh, in chapter 20, in verses 5 and 6, on the first giving of the law, um, God says this. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The clarification here in, in, in Exodus is that the one who hates the Lord will have the consequences of sin passed down from generation to generation. The parent's sin has hardened their own hearts and brought about a hatred of God. I think children raised in a home that despises and hates the Lord tend to practice such actions exposing their own hatefulness towards God. God doesn't punish them for sin that they have not committed. The other clarification is that those who love the Lord 
and keep his commandments, help pass down the love of God for generations. And this is here a, a warning and a motivation for us to want to live in such a way so that we not make it more difficult for our children and their children. I know that there is a tension here, um, but I cannot completely unravel it. <laughs> I think we're just going to have to live with it. And, and I know that there is more said about the wrath and the justice of God, um, but that is something I'm going to cover uh, next week as we look at Psalms 11. Lastly, let's look at Moses' response to the awesome revelation of God himself. It says, the Lord, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He wasted no time in falling to the ground in worship. Other translations say he made haste or hurried to worship the Lord. He does not try to question God on any contradictions he thinks he might see or state any of his objections. He requested to see God's glory, and God showed him his name and his character. He fell down and dared not look up. Moses was in, his dis in distress as he interceded for a nation, the nation of Israel and was imploring God to continue with his people as his presence was worth more than the, the blessings of his promise without him. He prayed that God would show him his glory. He wanted a deeper understanding of God in the face of difficulty, and God answered in a mighty way. Worship is the right response to the revelation of God in such a glorious and deep way. I think as I stated from the beginning, the goal, the goal of true theology is true doxology. Like seeing God, seeing his character, his name, his attributes of God leads us to worship. I think this is the prescription for the Christians who feel like they're in over their heads or in circumstances that seem difficult and don't know how they're going to move forward. This is the remedy for those who are in a place that they cannot go on in their own strength. It's to cry out to God, to the God who is, and be in awe at the revelation of himself. Cry out the way Moses did when he said, show me your glory. I think we can lift our eyes from the trials or difficulties we'll face to the majestic nature of God and be in awe of him and who he is when we see his presence as more beautiful than the blessing, when we pursue him, regardless of the duration of the trial, regardless of the complete removal of the trial, being in the presence of God is greater than any blessings without him. We too should respond in worship and prayer. Let's pray now. Almighty oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us or that we can know you. Help us to, to fall on our face as we meditate on you and worship you, Lord, and go before us this next hour as we worship together. May it be a pleasing sound to you. In Jesus' name, amen.